we we're taking one verse, and you know, good. I just run her in the ground. I just expository, expound. It's a Latin word called on and on. It's a Greek word for Anna, really, on and on and on and on. And so, but First Peter chapter number two, verse two says this in the NIV Bible. So here's the analogy: just like newborn babes crave or demand. Demand it, pure spiritual milk, so that you can grow up, up in your salvation. And we've said this for the last seven weeks. You, this is not dealing with you getting into heaven. Soteria is a Greek word for salvation. It means my relationship with God as far as on the spiritual. You can only be saved once. Now you can live like hell the rest of your life, but you can only be saved once if you're born again of God. But the word salvation... Is we are dichotomy. We are broken up in three different compartments. And some of you men know. How many knows that you have about seven or eight liquid fluids that goes in your car, and not all of them are made to in exchange? <laughs> Try that. Go put the pinzole in your windshield wiper. See how that works. <laughs> put the windshield wiper fluid, Robert, into your transmissions and see how far you go. The idea of this is this that. That we, when we come to the church, for someone to say, well, you just need to get God's word in you. I, I'm, I'm the proponent of God's word more than anybody you know, and you know that. But I will tell you, different portions of scripture deals with our spirit, our body, and our mind. And it's very important for us to get them in the right place. So that's why the Bible says, in your patience, you will possess your souls. Jesus talked about the invasion of Jerusalem, and it means this that in your waiting and staying steady on God, you will keep your mind. Saving your soul doesn't mean going to heaven. It means you'll keep you from going insane. Wow. Is anybody here besides me on the brink of insanity sometimes? So the idea of that this morning is the fact that, that you may grow up in your salvation. It means that you can only be saved once. You can only get to heaven one way. That's through Christ crucified, resurrected, but when we become born again, how many knows that our salvation wasn't through? If he was just interested in getting you to heaven, Brandon, he should have hit you in the head when you said, I do Jesus. And carry that had been a lot of weight off all of us, but he did not. So evidently that we have to deal with stuff. So as we end this sincere milk of the word of God and demanded, the word crave means demanded. Remember we said this? Demanded. You should demand it of me. Whether I feel good or not, you're here for a reason. And when that mother comes out of that baby comes out of her mother, the baby says, Listen, we'll hold up on the footprints, the fingerprints, and the autographs. I want to see my mother behind closed curtains for a moment. And I'm going to scream till I get what I want. Some of you should be kicking and screaming till you get what you want as far as the principles of God's word. That's the way it is. So, so when we left you, this is kind of important that talk about dairy producers, and we're going to get to the next one, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, because these four things is what we refer to as the platform of the New Testament church. But anyway, uh, a cow's milk. Anybody here are dairy farmers or was a dairy farmer? Anybody went to Brahms, got some milk? Yes, that's, there you go. Ice cream. Anybody here did ice cream? Okay. So we talked about when you demand the word of God, listen, you should demand the, the sincere, Adalos is a word, you should demand the whole sincere milk of the word of God. No baby wants skim milk. Nobody baby wants 1%. The baby wants full streak of what mama's got because the baby wants to grow. You're trying to lose weight in the church and God's trying to make us fat. 
Because we want to be socially accepted to the church. And God said, he said, the righteous, they are fat. That's what he says. So in a cow's milk, whether it's Holstein's or we're going to say a jersey, it's somewhere between 25 and 4% fat. All right, so I'm not going to be here long because you really could care less. I can tell you by looking at you, you don't care. But, but we're going to say 4%. Fat. Fat. So here is, here is 4% of the Word of God, full strength. You ready? Full strength. John 3, 16, because we're taking something that you probably know by now, I guess. This is St. John chapter 3, verse 16, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is John 3, 16, and that is full strength. So John 3.16, like we read it, that's full strength. I mean, that's the whole fat product in the Word of God. So here's 2%. This is every other word. So you're saying, well, what does is, what is fat content got to do with my spiritual growth? I'm glad you asked that, because here we go. For so the that gave only son, whoever in should perish, have life. That's 2%. It gets even better, Don. <laughs> Let's look at good old 1%. Oh, yeah. This is every fourth word. For the gave son in perished life. You don't even know, want to know what skim milk says. <laughs> skim milk says God and perish, basically. The idea is that when you, when you understand this simple principle, the full strength of the fatness of God's word is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, monogenesis, one of a kind. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But 2% of that is for so thee that gave only son whoever in should perish have life. That really doesn't even make sense. You ought to try to remember and recite that one. And then for you that say, well, I'm just into 1%. Here you go. And I asked you a question, do you really get the full meaning of redemption story with 2% or 1%? Y'all are all going to hell. Do you really? I mean, do you, they didn't say anything. They're gone. The angels of darkness are at the back door coming to get them. No. So why is it so important that I get up here for an hour at a time and days at a time and and, and I hammer and, and, and I teach you biblical principles because I want you not only to understand the full fact context of John 3.16, but I want you to understand all of it. Because churches today, these guys behind here, these podiums are geniuses at half scripture, at 1% and at 2%. And as a baby says, Mom, I want the full strength. Coming out of your breast, I want full, I don't want 1%, I don't want 2%, I want to get fat, I want to outgrow this diaper. And you should demand of me, get off the Facebook and get off these 3 a.m. preachers in the middle of the night that's quoting half scripture. They're taking something out of Joel and they're using a verse of Revelation and they're applying today. Quit doing that. Put it in context. Understand what he's trying to tell you. And so this is why this is so important for you to desire the sincere milk of the word. So here we go. We're quitting. The word sincere is adalos. And adalos means A is the negative. A is the negative like, like ek. But A is the negative. And adalos means, it means 
pure, undefiled, uncorrupted, the real deal. What he's telling you is, when you come to the principle of the Word of God, don't settle for 1% or 2% because it gets confusing to you. Get the whole picture. Get the whole fact content. Get somebody that can help you produce the sincere, the unpolluted, the unfiltered, the full strength, pureness of the Word of God because this is what he said. Jesus said, man cannot live by easy and convenient things alone, but every word, every word, every word, every word, every E-V-E-R, why? Word that comes out of the mouth of God. And no wonder you're in a mess. Turn to somebody and say, now I realize why you, you act like you do. Because you're a 2% and a 1%er. Throw those things away and come in here with pencil and paper, a tape recorder, write it down, write it on the back of the church pew. I don't care what you, well I do care, I do care. I don't want 1%. I don't want 2%. I want the real deal. I don't care what this one said and that one said and my mama said. I don't care anything. I want to know what God said. So that's why I do what I do. And I do it a lot. Because I want you to gain weight and be fat spiritually. Turn to somebody and say, I can tell you right now that your belly is sticking out right now. Tell them. So Acts chapter 2 verse 42 is really, there are four things that the first church, we talked about this last week, this is probably one of the greatest platforms today. Forget about Revelation, get off the mark of the beast, the COVID shots are not the mark of the beast. Somebody asked me about the mark of the beast, here it is, it's Nero. That'll shock you. It was Nero's name. Nero. And I understand the Catholic Church, and I understand Vicarious idea, but Nero's name, John is writing in a cryptic code in Revelations. So quit going idiots over this this 666 number. John had it. You take Nero Caesarea, and his number is 666. John is writing about Nero that's about to barbecue the Christian community in the first century, and he did. Okay? So if you so want to because you're bored out of your mind, you, you, you can talk about revelational things and things, but I'm telling you, John is writing in a cryptic code to a, the first century church that are scared out of their mind and he said, here's his number. He uses all the, the papacy with it, but he said, this is the deal. He is the beast. Matter of fact, his nickname was the beast. You couldn't mention name, not like today. There was no First Amendment rights back then. You mentioned anything against Nero, and heads off. So if you don't know this, his name in Roman noodle, Nero Caesarea, is 666. But besides that, the greatest scripture is this one that you need to build your Christian principle life on. And they which was the apostles, they, which is the first church, continued, is a word devoted. It means prosk. Prosk means to be addicted to opium. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine, we talked about this for the last six weeks, to fellowship, to prayers, and the breaking of bread. So to get off the apostles' doctrine, because we've been on it for three weeks, it, the word apostles, it means you had to be an eyewitness, Acts chapter 1, verse 22, of not only his baptism, but his resurrection. That was the requirements to be an apostle. Number two, in, in, the word doctrine means instruction. It means instruction. We dealt with this last week. So we've been learning that the first church was a learning church. And the Apostles' Doctrine, what makes it so important was this, is because secondhand information would not cut it. It had to be an Apostle's instructions. Because the Apostle saw him baptized, 
They saw the heavens open up. They heard the voice of God said, This is my beloved Son, and I'm well pleased with Him. And not only these same apostles had to be a bird's eye view of the resurrection. And not only, not only the, the first day after His resurrection where they were hiding in the upper room, and the eighth day where they hiding up in the upper room. But these apostles walked with Him, they learned of Him, and we dealt with this for an hour last Sunday morning about Peter. All he did was let the Scriptures speak for themselves Acts chapter 2, all he said was, is what Joel said, Isaiah said, and David said, and the scriptures are confirming the information that they already knew. To be a true apostle is this, all I'm saying is what God has already said. You want to put me to the test? Here it goes. Here's the litmus test for an apostle or anybody that claims to be a prophet or apostle. Instead of saying, yeah, yeah, I say unto thee, arise and go down the street of Maxwell and go west till you come to a street called Commerce. And there you shall bear left. And as you bear southward, you'll come to a street called Fort. That's coming to your house, Jeffrey, yes. <laughs> and, and, and by the time they're through and they, they, they ask for more money, I mean, you're thinking, is this all? No. A true apostle or prophet is one that just repeats what God has already said. It's amazing. Because there's authority and anointing in the Word of God because he said, my word and my anointing will break every yoke that's among you. So the idea that not only was the first church a learning church, and they were, but we're fixing to find out that they were a loving church. This is probably one of the greatest scriptures. I I have a bunch, like I have like 10,000 that I like the most. But, But this one, I can keep you here for months and, and so I'm going to talk about this just for a moment, and then we're going to give you the definition of what fellowship is next week, and then we'll cover these two. But these, these four things are like a good, sturdy stool. Four legs. The four in the Bible is the number for balance. Four seasons, four directions of wind, four tops, singing group, and all those things. It's, it's four is the number of balance. He's giving you a balanced church. And this is what I want to say to you. You heard me say last week, these church, this church just got started, and not only does God want them to survive, but God wants them to thrive, and they're fixing to have to learn to thrive through persecution like they've never known before. Some of you say, well, I've been persecuted. And Brad said, I don't know what he's been through, but I will tell you, if we're not careful, the stage is being set for the church to suffer tremendous persecution in the next five to ten years. You can just mark it down. If things continue the way that we see they continue, I will tell you, you really need to pay attention and get a hold of God. Really. Now, I know that's doom and gloom, but it's okay. It's all right. So the idea this morning is that fellowship is a loving church. So let's discuss that. Why is it so important to you be a part of a local church? And it's very important. Number one, it's very important for you to be a part of a local church that understands the apostles' doctrine that only teaches the Word of God. And Ron Bryan, thank you for all the kind words that you share on Facebook about me. Thank you. I love you. you got a big heart. But number two, it's important that you be a part of church that, that you feel like that you're welcomed and not a trespasser. That's kind of important. We have some families that just started the church, and I, just, I hope that you're made to feel welcome. And so fellowship is a very important. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, and they continued, where's the word called proscaterial, or prosk, it means to be addicted to dope or opium, excuse me. Opium was, was, a, was a very common product back then. And when you're addicted to opium, you just don't get off and on when you want to. It has you. 
I'm not going to ask for a raise of hand, but somebody's ever been hooked on any type of narcotics. It's not the easy. Everything screams in you to get off of it, and you can't get off of it. How many has ever watched Gilligan's Island? Here's the story. We've got two crew members, the skipper and Gilligan, and we have, we have five passengers. They begin a little journey, a three-hour cruise, a three-hour cruise. See, they've seen this. We're all in this together. So the question is, what does the church, what does the church got in common with Gilligan's Island? So this is what happens. So, so they, they have five passengers that from different walks of life, everywhere from the rich and famous to Hollywood, even from Kansas, and, and they all get together, and they go on this little three-hour excursion from in Hawaii, and some bad weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If it wasn't for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. You know how that goes. And so... So a three-hour little journey in Hawaiian waters turned out to be a three-year, 90-episode sitcom. So what does the church in Gilligan's Island have in common? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're all in the same boat together. It's called the USS Life. We feel isolated and alone being surrounded by weird people. Yeah, now we're getting it. We're learning to adjust the needs of others who doesn't look like us. And basically the fourth one is that we're all waiting to be rescued. And as the Christian community, we're going to say we're waiting for the return of Jesus. Now whether it be through death or the second coming, this is the deal about what the church has in common with Gilligan's Island is that what we thought it was the love boat turned out to be the Titanic. And a three-hour decision cost us three years or 90 episodes of, of living in the same sitcom. The idea of this is that when we get involved into the Christian community of being born again of Christ, that we have to understand this as far as fellowship. We're on the same island together. We're all in this together. And, and even in the church, we're really surrounded by some weird people. Turn to somebody and say, now he's talking about the section across from me. Yeah. <laughs> and when you get a part of fellowship, it will, will, will give you the, all the Greek words next week about fellowship, koinonia and currency and all that stuff. You know I got it. But we're learning to adjust to the needs of others. That doesn't look like you. And lastly is that we're waiting to be rescued. So... It's very important you understand this, that something is going on for you people that have not watched Gilligan's Island. That it's not like the movie Survivor. Oh, Y'all watch the series Survivor? That's a cutthroat business. The church is not about Survivor. The church is about Gilligan's Island with a bunch of goofballs, and we're going to work together and pull our way together, and we're going we're, we're to get through this thing in laughter and joy. Amen. Survivor is they cut one another's throats. That's not what we do. It's no fun to be the only survivor. Somebody said, well, go, I, I encourage you to go find yourself. Lock yourself away. Well, I did, and I found myself, and I wasn't impressed with God at all. I'm glad, I'm glad I found God, or he found me. So the idea this morning, dealing with fellowship, there's a scripture found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and it says this, it is not good that man should be alone. 
Now that's weird. Now that's real. That's kind of weird because we've never heard this. This is the first time we've ever heard this. It is not good. For the first chapter, we've heard good, 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 good. We've heard good everything. He created the heavens, it was good. He created the firmaments, it was good. He, he put blue skies, he said it's good. Green grass, it was good. And purple mountains and waves of grain, that's a different song. But everything was good. And we got the man and woman, he says, very good. Don't change it. The Hebrew word says, don't change it. This is what I want, don't change it. But he says that it is not good that man should be alone. And this is weird for him to say this because this is the first time that Adam has ever heard this. Because see, life in the garden has been good up to now. Adam had a great job. Adam had all the comforts. His thermostat in the garden was, was preset to 70 degrees. Everything was good. No taxes, no traffic, no lines at Walmart. I mean, it was all good. No mortgage payments, no weird people. It was all good, just him and God. And, and, and so God said, I'm going to give you a job. He said, I'm ready. He said, I'm, I'm going to run a parade of animals through here, and I'm going to let you name them. He said, I'm up for the challenge. So he started that morning, and with a, God moved across a great big four-legged quadruped, and he said, scientifically, I'm going to call it a rhinoceros. God said, oh, that's great. And so the next animal, he said, well, because of his size, I'm going to call it a hippopotamus. So God said, oh, that's wonderful. And so the day went on and on. And so when he named all the animals, and, and Adam said, what do you got left? And God said, I just got a bunch of parts and scraps and put them together, and he named them cat. That's what he did. <laughs> Sounds good to me. When he said that God, it's not good that man should be alone, it's not only just dealing with just marriage, because some people, the Bible says that Paul deals with it, he says some people find completion in singleness. Understand? So somebody, this come up, I mean, this come up, and I'll, I don't mind saying, somebody asked me not too long ago, you know, if, if Gayla died or I died, if Gayla died, you know, would I remarry? And the answer is no. I mean, when you married the best, that's it. I mean, that's, I understand people get married. If you want to get married, get married. But, I, but the Apostle Paul said that, that dealing with man should not be, should, it's not good for man to be alone. It doesn't necessarily mean in marriage because there are people that are married for a long time or a short time and, and whether it be a good example or by, by a bad example, but they're, they're, they're content in singleness. If you want to get married, I'm open on every day ends with why to marry you. Okay? If you don't want to get married, I'm open every day to come and have a cup of coffee with you. Whatever you want to do. But he's dealing with Adam to saying, he said, you're not complete yet. So Adam names all these animals, and you know this, and he names them, got them all down. And then he said, I am so exhausted by naming these cats. And he, and he falls asleep, and he wakes up, and, 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 and he, he looks at this other creature because Adam's, by definition, the Hebrew is ish, I-S-H, ish. And so his name is Adam, Adama, but he, God calls him Adam or ish. If God says, when I look at you, I see me. Ish. And so he names all these creatures and they're all running around and, and all of a sudden when he wakes up in the day, he says, oh man, I got a side egg. And he looks and there's a rib gone. And there's this creature standing in front of him and, and, and the first thing he looked at her and this is what he said, Isha. Isha. He said, because when I looked at the rhino, I don't get any vibes from it. And when I look at the hippo, I don't get any vibes from it. But when I look at you, it's like I'm looking at myself. And you've heard me say this, but when he looked at her, he said, how do I know what your favorite color is? 
How do I know that you're a sucker for French poetry? How do I know that you're a Sooner fan and not an OSU fan? How do I already know that? I haven't even talked to you, and I'm just looking at you. How do I know what your favorite food is and your favorite color is? How do I know that? And I'm just looking at you because the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 that he put them both, male and female, in the male body to be extracted one day in Genesis 2. How do I really know what pleases God? It's very easy. It's not trying to keep a set of rules and regulations. How do I know what really is the heartbeat of God? Paul tells you, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, because we were in Him before the foundations of the earth. God put us in King Jesus before the earth was made, and at Calvary, He opened up the right side as it was Adam, and out came the bride. Out came the church. And so I say to you this morning on, on a deeper spiritual level, how do I know really what pleases God? It's not a bunch of rules and regulations and cardinal doctrines. How do I know if I'm born again of God? I already know what really moves the heart of God because I've been in Him before the world was created. Now, if you don't get that, that's your own stinking fault. If you don't believe that, then you're walking in rebellion. You need to go back and forget that 1% and that 2% business and you need to get the full strength of what the Word of God says. And just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not truth. How many knows when you're in high school, you didn't understand algebra or girls, but they were still truthful? <laughs> so he said, it's just not good for you to be alone. It's just not good for you to be alone. You're half the person without her. You're not complete. She makes you complete. And, 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 and so I'm just saying, don't jump up and go get married tomorrow because you're single. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just telling you that you're going to find out whether it be a, someone as far as your spouse or someone that's connected into your spiritual man or woman in the church. It's not good for you to be alone. Now, I will tell you, I used to be alone before my beautiful bride, and I'm a lot better now than I was before she came into my life. Because when you're alone, next week, you might want to show up. You're not going to show up. I'll send you the, the scriptures to this. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it says, it says somewhere in the book of Proverbs, I'm not going to tell you, but when you're alone, you become self-minded and self-centered and no one else matters. Show up Sunday, you'll get it. So God is telling you, it's not good for you to be alone. You need fellowship. You need to be connected. Matter of fact, I wrote in here before we go home. We were wired for fellowship. It was God's design that fellowship was in our lives. And when I say that we were wired for fellowship, I, I, I will tell you that some of you are, are, are good with electronics, and he says, don't be conformed to this world. Philip, the word, Romans 12 and 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be the word conform is where we get a word for schemazo, where we get a word for schematic drawing. It's, it's, it's computer chips on a board, pre-programmed. And when you pre-program something and you stick it into a machine, that machine only does what it's been pre-programmed to do. Are you with me? Okay. 
And he said, don't let the world or the religious world conform you and make you do something that's not who you are. See? And, and the world is doing their very best to do that. So we are wired for fellowship. God wired us. God hooked up all the components, components and he said, listen, you're doing a lot of good things, but there's one part of your life that, that you're, feeling, you're, you're, you're feeling this emptiness and likeness, and it's this. It's fellowship, being co connected with people that doesn't necessarily look like you because when Adam looked at her, he said, you don't look anything like me. You got parts that I ain't got and I got parts you ain't got. But there's something about you when I see you, I see me. This is the deal. We all look different, but that we have something in common. It is the blood of Christ that connects us together. And if we can keep the blood of Christ connecting us together, we can endure any storm and we can get past COVID-19, COVID-20, COVID-21, and everything else. Fellowship. You need it. Turn to somebody and just say, I, I think I need it. So if we were wired for fellowship, which we are, and we function better with other people, which we do, and that's why he says, don't let, don't, don't forsake the assembly of yourself to get better together means components you you need everybody in their place and doing certain things you need fellowship we need apostles doctrine but number two you need fellowship you need to belong as much as you need to believe and you take anybody in a church that is not really in fellowship with the church you're miserable i'm gonna tell you right now they're miserable the most miserable people in the world are not sinners i used to be one i really wasn't that miserable until god got a hold of me the meanest people in the world are people that are in fellowship with God. Oh, yeah. I, got a bit, I wrote a book on that, and some of you are in it, but I'm not going to let it go until I die. The meanest people in the world are in people sitting in churches that are out of fellowship with God. And when you get out of fellowship with God, you're out of fellowship one with another. But when you're in fellowship with God, it's amazing how you can tolerate people. So, but I want to tell you that fellowship... Is messy business. And fellowship is with a messy bunch. Now I'm going to talk about us. There is no perfect people. Somebody say, well, I mean, the churches are filled with hypocrites. I understand that, but there's room for one more. Come on. Amen. The idea that fellowship is a messy business. Oh, it's easy to show up late here and I know there's a lot of people gone, and for whatever reason, I'm not on them at all. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad they're gone. How about that? <laughs> but when you start dealing with people, it's messy business. Remember what I said, Proverbs 14, 4, no oxen in the stall. The stall is spick and span. But the more oxen you get, the deeper it gets. People come equipped with stuff. So the idea that, that fellowship, when you get involved into a church and get involved, there's no perfect church, there's no perfect people. If you're looking for a perfect church, just keep looking because this is not it. But I will tell you that this is a church that has been spearheaded with a thought process that the apostles' doctrine must come first in this church and fellowship must come second. We will teach biblical principles with truth. And number two, that we're going to learn to love and appreciate and respect one another. And if you can't do that, then we're going to send you out the door in the nicest Christianist way. The idea that fellowship, it's, it's a messy business, but it's a messy bunch. Now let me give you a scripture before we go home, and I'll show you something. 
This is found in St. Luke chapter number 4, verse 18, and we're going to put it in, thank you, Brother Ron, good old New King James. So, he's at Nazareth, his first time to give a public speech in the synagogue. This is Jesus, of course, and this is what he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight of the blind, and to settle liberty to those that are oppressed. Would everybody pretty well agree that's, that's a pretty good verse? Yeah, yes. He's telling you the righteous Jesus with no sin, no imperfections, and no weaknesses is fixing to get in fellowship with some folks that are not like him. Pay attention. Jesus is not looking for angels and those without sin. He's about to tell you he's getting, going to get connected with a messy bunch of people. So you may say, well, Reverend, you, you have no idea what I've done and what I've been through. Listen, I'm fixing to give you a description of the bunch that he got connected to. You're not that bad. Number one, the poor. They always say, what can you do for me? Listen to what Jesus is telling you he's about to get involved in. He said, I'm, I'm not looking for people that will stroke me and they'll, they'll, they'll whisper wonderful things to my ear. I'm not looking for a church that's absolutely flawless and sinless and, I, and, and that, that absolutely just shines with my glory. He said, I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm about to get involved in fellowship with people that absolutely they are a mess. Didn't scare him. Gail bought me a t-shirt one time and said this, I ain't afraid of anything. I work at a daycare. I understand that. Man, you work with a daycare for 80 kids a day. I mean, you ain't nothing you're afraid of. Jesus is telling you, pay attention. When you deal with fellowship, man, this is the myth buster right here. Number one, there's people that are poor. It means this. They're always got their hand out, and this is, their, this is the verse, first, second, and third verse of the anthem they sing. What can you do for me? Number two, brokenhearted. Peoples whose lives are in pieces, they carry themselves around in paper sacks. They're not in peace, they're in pieces. Unlike what Jesus said in John 14 and 27, I will leave you in peace, not in pieces. You're going to have friends and you're going to have acquaintances with people that absolutely every time that you talk to them that their mind is somewhere else. And they'll tell you that I'm, I'm in pieces. I'm a nervous wreck. I've got this going on and that going on. Listen, it's, it's a messy bunch. When you decide to say, I think I want to be a part of the church, there's no perfect people here. Jesus said the first thing, I'm going to be surrounded by people that always says, give me this, I need to be healed. I need you to pull fish, money out of the fisher's mouth. I need to do this, I need you to do that. I want you to come here, I want you to raise this stuff. I want you to do that, I want you. That means poor. The Greek word is called bankrupt. The inability to do anything. But he said, now then, broken hearted people whose lives are absolutely in a mess. Shattered. What started to be the love boat turned to be the Titanic and we're all going down. And the third one, he says this. 
Think about people that who are brokenhearted. Assembly is always required. People who are brokenhearted, I understand you're going through something. I understand somebody hurt you, somebody broke you, you're living in pieces. I understand that right now. And there's nothing wrong with that because that's part of the human nature. But I will tell you that when you deal with people, they carry around their emotions and their lives and their past and all these things in pieces. What they're saying is, I need somebody to assemble me back together. And so after doing this for 30-something years, I'm not making light or fun, but I, somebody come in house and come to me and he said, hey, I need some help get my life back together. I thought, I thought I got you back together last week. Well, you did. But I got back on the same road in front of the same truck. Third one, captive individuals who are bound by some habit or addiction. Can't get free from it. So now then we're surrounded by people that always want you to do something for them. Number two, now you deal with people who's, who's a mess. They're not together. Their life's in pieces, their mind's in pieces, their emotion's in pieces. They're... And now then, he's throwing you right in the middle of the church with people that are addicted to things. You can name them. I ain't got time. Just can't get away from it. I want to, and everything, there's a claw in my mind. So he sends you to church and, and, and to hear the apostles' doctrine, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by people and say, hey, listen, while, while you're up getting a drink, can you bring me back some water, you know? The third one is, the fourth one is, what's this? Blind, no peripheral vision. They only see themselves. Now my mother... She was legally blind. I'm legally blind. I have refrigerator blindness. I can't find anything in the icebox. I don't care if there's a side of beef in there. At 3 a.m., I go, Gala, where's the side of beef? It's right there in front of you. I'm right there in front of it. I don't see it. Anybody done that besides me? Yeah, refrigerator blindness. I got that blindness, period. And my mother was legally blind. And it doesn't mean that she was legally blind that she couldn't see anything that, that we refer to as she has macular generation, and she absolutely she could see just starburst of certain things later in life, but she really couldn't see. The idea when the Apostle Paul said that he was blind, it he had tunnel vision. He had, and when Ananias prayed for him, it, it's a Greek word means take off the cataract. The Apostle Paul only saw one thing: the law of the Pharisees. He was blind, but he could, it, it means it means tunnel vision. He could only see the law of the Pharisees. And when God got a hold of him, Ananias prayed for him, and the cataracts come off, and he had peripheral vision. He could see now the body of Christ. So not only when you come to this church, I'm sorry to bust your bubble. You may want to go ahead and pull your membership card and go somewhere else, but you're going to find the people in this church that absolutely that seems to be poor, and they want you to do some things for them. And you can say, well, all the nerve, but listen to what Jesus is getting into. And he's telling straight up, I know what I'm getting into. Number two, people that are a mess. <laughs> Number three, people that are addicted to stuff. Number four, people that doesn't see the needs of other people. All they see is themselves. That hurts. You know what hurts about this in Luke 4? He's speaking about me. And the last one it says, those that are oppressed. It's a Greek word called kanodosteo, but the word oppressed means always negative, always defeated, 
always a shame. Kanadusteo means a king of a dynasty. It means for a subject to be put in a fetal position. It's the alcoholic father coming home to a young child that when he hears the father pull up in the driveway, he runs to the closet and he gets in a fetal position and he hides because that alcoholic abusive father is about to scream and demand and it brings the child to a place of being oppressed. So the answer this morning is I wrote in here, are you feeling alone and isolated and you see, these really doesn't look like a perfect picture of the bride of Christ, does it? Does any of these things that I've just showed you look like the perfect picture of the bride of Christ? Absolutely not. Do you look like the perfect picture of the bride of Christ? I, and I said this a few weeks ago. I've done a ton of weddings, and I'll tell you, me and the guy stands here, but when that woman comes down the aisle, I'll assure you, she's done a lot more preparation in her looks than he did. That goober head was good to comb his hair. You know what God is doing? He's preparing a bride for His Son. You know why God is patient with us? Because with a little mascara and a little cosmetics, He'll make us a beautiful bride for His Son, Jesus. God's working on us. So you feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel abandoned. You feel empty, you feel void, you feel these things. Here's the antidote. It's just called fellowship. Being surrounded people that may be a mess, but watch this. We're all a mess. And there's no message without a mess. So fellowship is so important this morning. Because I think sometimes that we, we say this, especially as, as preachers, I, I don't know if I say it or not, but I guess I've thought it through the years. But boy, if I, if I could just have that person come to this church, and if I could just have that guy to come to church, and I'd even do a church student exchange. I'd trade off Don and Brad for a couple of others. I'm willing to do that. But, but the, idea that, 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 the idea is that God said, that's not what I sent to you. The poor and the brokenhearted and the oppressed, and the blind, and the captive. Jesus waded right off into the middle, and they said, they may be a mess, but they're my mess. And I'll be patient, and I'm going to work on them. And by the time I get through with them, they'll be a perfect picture of the loveliness of the bride of Christ. Fellowship. Isn't God good? So Jesus stood up in Luke chapter 4 and He gave this discourse of not only the anointing of God was upon Him, but He said, I'm going to need God's anointing in my life because of the people that I'm about to get involved with. I, I'm just, I'm wore out but people say that they're anointed of God, but they don't have the patience to do the ministry of God. That's wearing me out. You're killing me. 
people get behind podiums and talk about how anointed they are, but yet they'll gossip behind somebody's back or somebody comes to the church that has an imperfection or weakness or a habit. They have certain things and they're quickly to just, just to run them over. The reason why God wants to anoint you because the people that He's going to put in your life may be a mess. He didn't anoint you that you can grow feathers and get goosebumps and be all sister and brother fluff. He, he gave you an anointing because of the people that you're fixing to be surrounded in fellowship with. And God's grace is greater than our sins. So Father, if we've learned one thing this morning, that we've learned that the people that you have put into our lives, that they were on assignment by you. We need your anointing. We need your spirit upon us. We need to be so filled with your presence this morning that no matter where we go or what comes our way, that, that we will accept the poor and the blind and the brokenhearted and the oppressed and we'll be easy and gentle and caring and loving as we would do our own family member fellowship. So we give you thanks this morning for every heart that's hurting and everyone that's poor in spirit. Thank you for bringing them up to us today. They are not trespassing. They are welcome. And we want them here. In Jesus' name. And all the people of God say amen. amen. Give the Lord a praise offering this morning, huh? <laughs> Communion service, come on down here. Turn to about two people and say, listen, I'm glad you're here. I know you're a mess. You know I'm a mess. Fellowship. For you that are visiting, we celebrate Holy Communion every week. It's the last instructions that Jesus gave us. Last thing He told us to do. Very last. He said, do this. He didn't say if you feel like it. He didn't say if you had an agent in your report card. But I want to explain something to you that I explain every once in a while, but in Corinthians, he gives this discourse about communion. And for you that have been here, you know this, but for you that haven't been here, Paul said, do examine yourself. Do not take the cup unworthily because you're heaping damnation upon yourself. The word damnation means separation. And so that when once a month or whenever they decide to do this, that, you know, I hit the rewind button in my life and had a few F's on my report card and there wasn't any way I was going to take communion but boy, once again, it's that 1% business. The Apostle Paul said, in taking the cup and taking the bread, examine yourselves and don't let a man take a cup or the bread unworthily. In axios is the Greek. It means in your own worth. Don't ever take communion in your own worth. Whether you failed miserably or you got straight A's, don't ever take it in your own worth. There's only one who's worthy. And that's King Jesus. So every time that I take the cup and I take the bread, I'm not telling you that I've done good this week. I'm not telling you that I, I got them all right this week. I'm just telling you there's only one that's worthy. And it's my Savior Jesus. And every time that I take the bread and every time that I take the cup, it reminds me of Him. And I run to it.
Jesus sat with his disciples that night and he said, for 1,500 years, you've been celebrating an ordinance of the, the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread was the bread of haste. There was no leaven in it to cause it to rise. It's, it's symbolic of sin. But Jesus said, now then, I am the bread of life. I am the unleavened bread. And as often as you take this, it will remind you of me. He took the bread and he broke it. Jesus broke the bread for your brokenness, your broken lives, your broken heart, your broken homes, your broken marriages, your broken mind. Maybe you're like these people that are broken. Your life is in pieces. I understand. We're all that way. He took the cup and he lifted and he said, for 1,500 years you've been celebrating the, the lamb's blood. Moses took the lamb's blood and sprinkled it in the shape of a cross on the doorpost. But Jesus said, now I am the New Testament lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And Father God took my blood and applied it in the shape of a cross. And as often as you take this cup and as often as you take this bread, it will remind you of me. So Father, once again, we celebrate Holy Communion. We need to be reminded of your goodness for us. In Jesus' name, amen.